Well, good morning, everyone. How are you? Good. Hey, why don't you go ahead and open your Bibles with me, if you have them, to the Old Testament, to Jeremiah uh, chapter 29. Uh, We're continuing on with our series, Formed, uh, which is a study of this ancient text, and we're focusing, trying to focus primarily on the theme of God's sovereignty, especially as it, as it applies to him forming our lives and really forming history. As God said to the prophet Jeremiah and to the Israelites, he said, can I not do with you as the potter does? Like clay in the hand of the potter, so are you in my hand. Translation, God says, I, uh, I am in control not only of hum- human history, uh, but, but all of your lives. And I have a plan for all of this. In fact, God makes a promise here in chapter 29 of Jeremiah, a promise that's often quoted by people. But before I read it, let me, um, let me sort of reset the historical context for you. Because of sinful, unrepentant rebellion against him, God allowed the Israelites to suffer at the hands of the Babylonians. In 587 B.C., the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, invades the land of Judah Uh, sacks Jerusalem, pillages the temple, uh, and carries into exile 10,000 Israelites. He didn't take everybody. He he took only the prominent citizens, the the educated professionals, the priests, the the craftsmen, the artists, the wealthy. The sick, poor, and uneducated were left behind in the rubble. They became known as the Amharets, the people of the land, and Jeremiah was one of them. And at some point following this mass deportation, God instructs the prophet Jeremiah to send a message from Judah to those who were taken captive. And uh, we're told that this is the text of that letter. It reads this way, beginning in verse 4. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, so they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Don't listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies in my name. I have not sent them. This is what the Lord says, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Now, my guess is that some of us in the room are familiar with that last statement. You know, God makes to the people, he says, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope in the future. Some of us have quoted it for ourselves and our own lives, which I certainly understand. I mean, it's, it, it is true. Uh, God has a plan uh, for our lives, and this verse is instructive in the sense that it reminds us of how God is faithful to fulfilling his promises. But uh, this particular promise was made to whom? Specifically, the text said it was, it was, it was made to all the people that Nebuchadnezzar carried into exile from from Jerusalem to Babylon. And uh, God's plan for those same people was equally specific, that after 70 years, he'd rescue them, bring them home. But in the meantime, God says, here's my plan. Here's my will for you. Here, here's what I, what I want you to do, how I want you to do it, how I want you to live in, 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 in exile. And um, this is what I find so, so fascinating about this letter, because think about it. What did the... Um, what did the Jewish exiles find in Babylon? 
I'll tell you what they found. They found a great city and a culture that was completely different from their own. A land populated with men and women who, who, um, who, li- who lived differently, who believed differently, had different gods. They, they had different views of morality, of right and wrong. They had differing views of the nature of the world. On top of that, um, this was a society made up not only of Babylonians, but of other uh, conquered people groups. And because of that, Babylon was an incredibly diverse, multi-ethnic, and somewhat fragmented society. In many respects, it was much like our own. And God's will for his people, how he wanted them to live in that cultural context, while historically specific, is, in my opinion, instructive for us, the church today, as we struggle to find our way in what is an equally diverse, multi-ethnic, and increasingly fragmented culture where more and more people live, believe, look, and think very differently from us. Now, it's important to understand that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, he knew how he wanted the, uh, the Jewish exiles to live. Uh, the Babylonians were effective conquerors, and they realized that there were three ways to deal with a vanquished enemy. One was to keep them at arm's length, you know, out of, keep them out of the, your own land, dominate them from a distance, but then there was always this risk of um, you know, up, secret uprisings happening out there somewhere. You would have to go and deal with it. Uh, another option was to bring the conquered people back home with you uh, to Babylon, enslave them, uh, sub- subjugate them to, to menial labor. However, uh, humiliating oppression tends to bring out the worst in people. And so if they treated their enemies that way, if they treated them like slaves, at some point they knew there would be insurrection at home. And so the Babylonians opted for a different approach. Just as with Israel, after conquering a nation, uh, the king and their generals, they would bring back with them only the, the prominent, educated, wealthy, gifted citizens of that particular nation. And they would treat them quite well. They said to them, you know, you can live with us, you can, you can live among us, you can have homes and jobs, you can have an education, you can have families. However, you have to become like us. You have to assimilate. The Babylonians, their expectation was that, you know, within a generation or two, exiles would simply lose their national identity and their religious distinctives and be fully absorbed into their pagan culture. And so Nebuchadnezzar, he had a plan how, for how he wanted the exiles to live. The exiles had their own plan, and uh, they had no intention to assimilate, but every intention to separate and isolate. In fact, the first thing they did when they arrived in Babylon was establish a homogeneous community just outside the capital city where they planned to interact with the Babylonians only if and when necessary as a means of survival. In other words, their plan wasn't assimilation, it was, it was tribalism. And tribalism is when a certain group of people separate themselves from others with an arrogant superiority based solely on identifying with their own like-minded crowd. It's looking down on people for no other reason than they're not part of your group. So where assimilation uh, meant to accept, embrace, and be absorbed into the culture... Tribalism meant separating from, isolating from, and and, and interacting with culture only as a means to survive. The Israelites would do it if they had to. They would smile on the outside while hating the Babylonians on the inside. And there were some 
self-proclaimed prophets among the people who endorsed this idea because they were going around telling everybody, hey, let's do it because we're not going to be in Babylon very long. Which is why God says in his letter, do not let the prophets among you deceive you. Don't listen to them. They're prophesying lies in my name. I have not sent them to you. God says, trust me. (laughs) You're going to be in Babylon a while, 70 years to be exact. So when it comes to living in that diversely pagan, multi-ethnic, fragmented society, assimilation, separation, tribalism, God says, I don't want any of those things for you. Here's my plan for you. I want you to build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Enjoy it. Marry and have kids. Let your kids marry and have kids. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Translation. While in exile, God says, I want you to live peaceful, productive lives. Work hard. Enjoy the fruit of your labor. Have families. Grow in number because I don't want you to lose your ethnic identity or I don't want you to lose your faith in me. And I'm thinking that, you know, this opening statement of the letter may have, may have surprised the people a little, but what comes next must have been horrifying to them. Because God goes on to say, also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city Babylon to which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Can you imagine uh, what the initial reaction must have been to this? Here were the Israelites living in a pagan culture among their enemies, the Babylonians, who just invaded their homeland, killed their friends and families, pillaged the temple, and carried them into exile, and yet God is instructing them to do what? To seek the peace and prosperity of Babylon. And notice, God doesn't say, I want you to think about peace, I want you to talk about peace, I want you to hope for peace. He says, I want you to seek peace. That's an active term. He says, I want you to actively bring about peace. I want you to be peacemakers, if you will. And just so we're clear on the scope of this, you know, often when we hear the word peace, we define it as, you know, the the absence of conflict or some kind of, um, you know, internal tranquility, right? But the Hebrew term that's used here, shalom, implies so much more than that. It's an incredibly rich term that refers to completeness, wholeness, uh, to full human flourishing in every dimension, uh, uh, physical, emotional, social, economic, and spiritual. And although our English translation doesn't show this, doesn't reflect this, God uses the term shalom three times here. He says, seek for the shalom, the peace, the flourishing of Babylon. Pray for it, because if Babylon experiences shalom, he uses the word here, if Babylon experiences shalom, if it prospers and flourishes, you too will experience Shalom. You will prosper and flourish. And notice, God says, I want you to, I want you to do this. I want you to seek this kind of peace. Uh, I want you to do it right here, in this land to which I have carried you into exile. You, you realize the significance of that statement, right? God is essentially taking responsibility for the whole situation, for all of it. He's saying to his people, you're living in the midst of a pagan culture among your enemies because I have sovereignly allowed it. It's part of a bigger plan. And now, here's what I want for you. I want you to accept the situation, and I want you to actively work for, root for, pray for the peace and flourishing of those who've mistreated you. So the Babylonians, they had a plan for the exiles. It was assimilation. The exiles' plan for themselves was separation and tribalism. God's plan for his people 
was peace-seeking engagement. He intended them, he intended for them to live not, not just for themselves, not just for their own survival, or for their own physical, emotional, economic, and spiritual flourishing, but he wanted them to live for, also for the welfare and the flourishing of their enemies. That was and is an outrageous idea that runs completely counter to human nature and most certainly ran counter to ancient, ancient Near Eastern thinking. And I don't know about you, how you respond to this, but for me, it's impossible for me to read this. It's impossible for me to, to read about God's people living in exile in Babylon and not see the correlation to where we, the church, today find ourselves some 2,600 years later. I mean, think about it. In the New Testament, uh, followers of Jesus are referred to as exiles. The Apostle Peter writes early Christians, and he says, he says to them, you know, we're strangers, we're foreigners living in a place that's ultimately not our home. It's a temporary deal. Heaven's our home. We're just here for a while. And he says, so as exiles, we're to live good lives among the pagans, seek peace, and pursue it. The Apostle Paul, he writes to Christians living in Rome. And he says, as far as it depends on you, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everybody. If your enemy's hungry, feed him. If your enemy's thirsty, give him something to drink. Overcome evil with good. In his letter to the early church, James writes about us as Christians being peacemakers who sow in peace. The author of Hebrews says, make every effort to live in peace with everyone. Why are they all saying this? They're all saying the same thing. Why? Jesus. It's about Jesus. Jesus was absolutely adamant about how he wanted his followers to live in this world. He said what? He said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. He said, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who mistreat you. Love your enemies, pray for those who mistreat you, be peacemakers. Doesn't that sound familiar? I mean, is it, is it just me, or do you guys see the correlation here, the connection between what, what, how God called the exiles in Babylon to live and how he calls us as followers of Jesus to live? I mean, the temptations are even the same, right? The temptations are the same. I mean, so many men, women, and students today uh, who, um, who call themselves Christians willingly and readily assimilate to the views, the values, and the practices of our 21st century Western world and tend to worship the cultural idols of the day more than they do God. Others in the church you want, they want to separate and isolate from culture. You know, we, we as Christians tribalize really well. We're really quite good at it. We huddle ourselves away together as much as possible in all kinds of venues. We hide behind the walls of our facilities, interacting with unbelievers only when necessary and as it pertains to our own personal benefit and flourishing. Otherwise, we sit in judgment of and hold in disdain those who are not part of our tribe, those who are not like us. We preach about love, but live in contempt. Assimilation, separation, tribalism, not much has changed over the centuries. But neither has God's will for his people changed. 
You know, but I'll be honest about it. You know, I, I've read the book of Jeremiah before. You know, in grad school I had to read it, read it off and on over the years. I've even read this chapter several times. But not until recently did I, did I truly begin to recognize the relevance of, of it all and the implication it holds for me and for you and for us as a church, God's people, living in a diverse, multi-ethnic, increasingly fragmented culture. Make no mistake, we are back in Babylon. But rather than cloister ourselves away and complain about it, rather than criticize, complain, hate, fear, and avoid the Babylonians, maybe it's time to see our situation as a sovereignly arranged opportunity to make a spiritual difference in our world, the world that God has us in right now. And what might that look like? Trying to do that. What might might that look like? Well, based on this text alone, let's consider the possibilities. As God's people living as exiles in a Babylonian-like culture, I, I, I think God calls us to, first of all, just to live in the land, to settle in, you know, own homes, be hardworking people, joyful lives, celebrating family, friends, and food. And despite the pain of the past and the challenges of the future, recognize that God is sovereign over all of it and be thankful for all that he gives us and acknowledge along the way his greatness. That doesn't sound too hard. Not to me. But here's where it gets a little dicey because God clearly calls his people also to live in the land generously always looking to give, to serve, to meet the needs of men and women in our surrounding community, in our cities, in our culture, no matter who they are, where they're from, what they walk like, talk like, what they've done in their life, doesn't matter. I mean, keep in mind, tribalism, tribalism is all about, is all about looking out for me and my group and my group's best interest to the exclusion of everybody else. Is that what God wanted for the exiles in Babylon? No. Is that what Jesus called his followers to? Absolutely not. Now, whether it's the 6th century B.C. or the 1st century A.D. or 21st century America, God calls his people to a life of peace-seeking, peacemaking engagement, which requires getting to know, rubbing shoulders with, and interacting with those who are different, those who look different, think different, believe different, live differently. It means to, to love and to care for even even our perceived enemies, even those who do, in fact, mistreat us. It means to actively and intentionally help them in whatever way we can, whatever practical way we can, for their good, for their benefit, for their welfare. Right? God says, seek the peace and prosperity of the city and the culture in which I've placed you. Work for, pray for shalom, the, the physical, emotional, social, economic, and spiritual flourishing of those around you. Those all around you. You guys see it? You see how God's command here to the exiles is no different from what Jesus said to his followers? We're not meant to, to live only to enrich ourselves and our own families or even our own churches. Therefore, it is not enough for us as God's people to have a vision for ourselves. We must also have a vision for our neighborhoods and our cities, our society, and the world at large. Despite how crazy, messed up, chaotic, secular, or hostile people might be. 
I mean, what's your opinion on this? How, you know, how do you, how are you seeing this? What do you think about it? I mean, by and large, do you think this is how Jesus' followers in this country are living? In this society? Are we living this way? Is this what the Christian church is doing? Engaging with outsiders? Leading the way in peacemaking? Caring for those who are different, the, mis- the, the, the forgotten, uh, you know, those who think differently than us, uh, even those who mistreat us, serving them for their benefit? Is that what's happening? You know, for me, this is just me, the circumstantial evidence says no. I look around at what has become a pretty well-developed Christian subculture of churchgoers in America, and it seems we can't even get along with each other, let alone seeking peace with those who are different and loving our enemies. For many who claim to to be followers of Jesus, the church, the quote-unquote church, is nothing more than a local organization not unlike the Park District, only with a religious twist providing expected programs, requested classes, and other self-serving amenities. And if we don't get what we want here, we just go to another one down the street. It's hard to come to grips with this, but the church in America today is more a monument to religious consumerism than a dynamic spiritual movement of God's people. And if we, if we have any hope for the future of this culture, we have got to see that. We have to recognize it's true, and we have to change things. The time has come for us to move away from our our, our doctrinal and ecclesiastical narcissism and find ways to make our theology relevant and Jesus real to people out in the culture. We have to do it. Because here's the deal. If we fail, if we don't do it, we're in trouble. Serious trouble. I, I, look, I realize, please understand, I realize saying this may offend some people. That's not my intention. But I have a fear. I fear if no one says this, if no one calls it out, and the church just continues down this path of religious consumerism, and if we refuse to change, if we, if we fail to recognize and re-embrace God's mandate of loving and seeking the peace of outsiders and neighbors and even our enemies, then the Christian church in this Babylonian-like culture will continue to lose its spiritual influence or what little it has left. And the cause of Jesus will not flourish. I mean, keep in mind what God says to those in exile. He essentially tells them that if you engage with, with, with your culture, the culture in which you live, where I have sovereignly placed you, if you actively seek the peace and prosperity of Babylon and it prospers, you too will prosper. That's an amazing statement. And it's hard to miss the significance of it. God does not call the exiles to some kind of political or military takeover of Babylon. They're not to do to the Babylonians what the Babylonians did to them. Instead, they're to seek the prosperity and the common good of the Babylonians. And ironically, God says, if you do that, you will flourish. If you do that, you, my people, will then gain influence in the culture. So here's the divine principle as I see it. Across the board, Old Testament, New Testament. The way to cultural power and influence is not to seek those things per se, but to love and serve people in the culture.
those who are different, even our enemies. I mean, you realize that's how the early church flourished, right? For example, uh, we have this, it's a fascinating letter. We have this letter that was written in 120 AD. It was written by a Christian, a follower of Jesus, uh, who was a servant, and he, he writes this letter to a guy named Diognetus. Diognetus was a Roman scholar. Uh, he, uh, he was also happened to be a tutor to the emperor at the time. Uh, and this, this, this Christian guy writes him a letter to explain why Christianity was growing so fast, fast throughout the empire, because it was, you know, the leaders in Rome were like, what's happening? And so this, this guy writes a letter to Diognetus, and he explains it this way. He says, you know, Christians, they busy themselves on earth, but believe their citizenship is really in heaven. When attacked, they rejoice as if given new life. Those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. They're treated outrageously, but behave respectfully. They love everyone, but are persecuted by all. They are poor, but make many rich. They're short of everything, yet they lack nothing. They're mocked, yet bless and give in return. Here's my Reiki summary. The indisputable love, generosity, and, and, and servant attitude of the early Christians spiritually influenced and totally changed Roman culture forever. It's history. That's what happened. Dr. Rodney Stark is a professor of social sciences at Baylor University. He wrote a book a while back titled The Rise of Christianity. Actually, you can't see the whole title. Here's the whole title. The Rise of Christianity, How the Obscure Marginal Jesus Movement Became the Dominant Religious Force in the Western World in a Few Centuries. Now, that, that is a really long title for a book that makes a very simple point. That instead of assimilating into the pagan culture, instead of separating from it, early Christians got out and engaged with it. They engaged with people, those who were different, those who believed differently, even their enemies. And their love and their generosity and their service to those people in those communities it was one of the most significant factors in the church's explosive growth over the first 400 years after Jesus. Why? Blessed, favored are the peacemakers. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Seek the peace and prosperity of Babylon. Pray for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. You know, the other day as I was finishing up my study of this, this particular section of Jeremiah, um, I couldn't help but think of that promise God makes here to the people when he says, you know, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope in a future. And I sa- as I said earlier, I realized that promise was specific to that time and that place. But it made me wonder about us. I mean, what about us? Does God have a plan for us, his people, the church today living in an extremely diverse, multi-ethnic, fragmented culture so similar to ancient Babylon? And I believe the answer to the question is yes. God does have a plan. Definitely has a plan for us. But how that plan unfolds, where it takes us, how it plays out, whether we prosper or not, whether the cause of Jesus flourishes in this culture or loses its spiritual influence altogether, will be determined by how we live as spiritual exiles in this land. And as a church, we're committed to follow Jesus' lead. 
and God's command to be peacemakers. Let's pray. Our Father, it never ceases to amaze me how such an ancient text um, that accounts, offers an account of a people and their experience more than 2,600 years ago in a place far away is so similar to where we find ourselves today. It's like as the more things change, the more they remain the same, and history has a way of repeating itself because here we are in our own Babylon among an increasing number of people who look different and think different and believe differently from us. And yes, some even mistreat us and misunderstand us. It's where you have placed us in, in this time, in this land. And I believe you call the church not to assimilate. I don't believe you call the church to tribalize and cloister ourselves away in all of our groups and, and, and meetings and behind our walls and, and hide in fear and, 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 and secretly disdain those around us. I don't think you want that at all. I think it's pretty clear what you call your people to. Actively seek the peace of, of, of our culture and the people in it to be peacemakers, as Jesus put it. Not just peace lovers, peacemakers. And Lord, I, I, I'm convinced the future of this land, of our society, uh, if the church doesn't step up, I, I don't know where we'll end up. But no matter what, I know that we're safe in your hands. I know you love us. But I ask you would give us, as individuals and as a church, the strength, the courage, uh, and the understanding to, to go out and, and follow your lead and follow Jesus and make a spiritual difference in our world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Too bad Ray didn't bring it this morning, huh? It's kind of... <laughs> No, I mean, the reality is is that, that there's a very good, there's a likelihood that many of you are potentially uncomfortable with, with the message from Jeremiah 29. And that's probably okay. Wouldn't, wouldn't you say, Ray? That's probably okay if you're processing through that and struggling and say, well, what is my role in, in the world? What's the church's role in the world? How do, how do I engage the outsider? How do I engage this, this culture that we're in? And if that's you, if you, I just want to encourage you to lean into that. Think about it. Talk about it with, with your family, with your life group. Spend some time talking to God about it. Because, I, I don't know, I think the thing that God calls us to do isn't always easy. And it's not always what we would choose to do. Living as an exile is hard. It's challenging. It requires to be okay with a certain amount of tension. And so I'm grateful this morning for, for the message from chapter 29 and Ray's willingness to to share what God put on his heart. So we're going to pray, you know, and, and close, just in closing, if there, there are some of you that would like to pray with someone individually, personally, there'll be some folks up front. Feel free to, to come forward and pray with them for any reason. But I'm going to close for us and we'll be dismissed. God, we, we do acknowledge that you have a plan for 
our lives and also for all of creation and history. We also acknowledge that it's a good plan and that you're great. And on the other hand, we acknowledge that it's hard and it requires us to be selfless. It requires us to be committed. It requires us to live in tension. And so as we seek to do that as individuals and as a church, you give us wisdom, you give us grace, you give us patience as we sort out what does it look like to live as exiles, to live in a culture that, that doesn't know you, that doesn't, that doesn't worship you. And what does it look like to engage that world? God, I pray that you would give us the grace to pursue that. We pray this all in your name. Amen.